3: From WADE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. The singer China Forbes has called her band Pink Martini Musical Ambassadors as they've recorded songs in 25 different languages and performed with orchestras and musical legends all over the globe. Their eclectic blend of jazz, pop, and retro lounge music has had the world dancing since they began in Portland back in 1994. Pink Martini is coming to Atlanta to perform at the Eastern on Thursday, and we'll hear from China Forbes later in the program sobriety intersects with comedy in theatrical outfits new co-production with dad's garage co-directors matt torney and tim stoltenberg join me with playwright sean daniels this hour to talk about daniels brutally honest and often hilarious show the white chip first Atlanta is home to the world's busiest airport, offering abundant domestic and international flights. Although some of us have put travel on hold during the past few years, industry experts predict a considerable increase in leisure travel over the months ahead. If you are among those Eager to travel, we can help you prepare for your next adventure with our new recurring series, ATL Up and Away, Travel Tips with Rick Steves.
4: Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff,
1: please.
3: Rick Steves is the very popular public television and radio host, best-selling guidebook author, and an activist who encourages people to broaden their perspectives through travel. Each month, Rick will join City Lights as our travel contributor and share his advice on making the most out of your time away from Atlanta. Rick
0: Steves, welcome to the City Lights family. Lois, it's so nice to be with you, and what an exciting uh, beginning to be talking travel in the city with the busiest airport in the entire world. Wow. Yeah, uh, that could be a
3: mixed blessing, but it means so many opportunities for rich travel experience. So let's begin this series with a topic I know is close to your heart, that being European travel. Rick, Why do you think it's important that Americans should travel to Europe?
0: Well, Lois, I think it's important that Americans should travel. Um, And then where to travel is is kind of up to them. Why Europe? Well, for me, Europe is the wading pool for world exploration. I just think you go there first, and then if you have a good time, that'll be your springboard for venturing But, you know, I I like to joke in my business, I've I've got 100 uh, colleagues here at Rick Steves Europe in Seattle, and our mission is to equip and inspire Americans to venture beyond Orlando. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I've got no problem with you know, Disney World. But if you've been there four or five times, you, you know, you, you could get yourself a passport and, and branch out a little bit. Try Portugal. It's not going to bite you. Mm-hmm. And um, you just won't know. And you might venture far away and decide, well, it's just not for me. I'm going to go back to whatever you want to do in the United States. That's fine. But if you haven't tried it, you don't know what you're missing. And I find that a lot of spouses drag their partner on one of our tours, and it's clear it's the dream come true for one, and the husband or the wife, usually it's the wife that that wants to travel, and the husband is dragged along, and they get over there, and they realize, whoa, I never realized how fun this could be.
3: Hmm.
0: So for this month's travel tip, Rick, what do we
3: need to know? What should we understand about the European Union? before planning a trip
0: yeah well you know Europe has a long and bloody history so many wars and I think the European Union which is that's a union of what 27 countries now uh, 450 million people Um, it's a union uh, to create a free trade zone so they could uh, compete economically there's an efficiency that comes with free trade and the EU is a free trade zone, so they can efficiently stand up against the emerging economies like uh, China and, uh, of course, the United States. Europe has about the same uh, GDP as the United States, Uh, but I think more fundamentally than economics, Europe was formed so they would weave their economies together and not have more wars. You see, historically, it's been France and Germany fighting each other all the time, and uh, now France and Germany's economy has been woven together, and a war between them is pretty much unthinkable. But imagine in 1947, that's when the EU started happening, uh, caring people, uh, society's leaders, uh, surrounded by uh, the rubble of a bombed-out Europe, thinking, this is insanity. We've got to think out of the box. We've got to do something dramatic so our children aren't going to be digging out again, as we have now twice in our lifetimes after World War One and World War II. So they decided to start um, creating this European Union. And creating it was quite a challenge because it's, it's more than just a treaty. To create a union, people are giving up sovereignty and nobody wants to give up sovereignty easily and it's a stumbling kind of evolution two steps forward and one step back two steps forward and one step back and from the united states we're sort of skeptical about the european union and every time there's a step back we go ah see europe's just going to fall apart but no european union is here to stay uh, the question about how big it's going to be well that remains to be seen apparently uh, britain was one step too big so britain left but it's you know the core of europe is still there and um, i think the european union is an exciting um, dimension of Europe, and uh, a great thing about traveling in the day and age of the European Union is uh, there's more efficiency. That's the whole idea. There's one currency jangling in everybody's pockets right now, and it's the euro. In the old days, you had to change you had to change money just to go from France to to Germany, and people would cross the border to get cheaper gas because of an exchange rate. Um, it was just—it was a, a lot of silliness, and now they have the efficiency of one currency. That's sort of, to me, emblematic of of what's going on with this vast free trade zone.
3: Well, speaking of the euro, do you think travel to Europe, travel within Europe, will be a good deal for Americans in twenty twenty three?
0: Well, there's inflation. Uh, you know, getting through the pandemic caused a lot of. Um, countries to do a lot of things to stimulate the economy and 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 uh, I think that comes with inflation. Today in the United States we're struggling with inflation and in Europe they have the same challenge. Uh, what what softens that challenge for us travelers when it comes to how far our dollars will stretch is the dollar is really strong on the euro right now. The dollar is, I believe, it's uh, a euro cost a dollar and seven cents. It's almost par and uh, that just means that prices are pretty good in Europe. At least you won't feel the inflation uh, like the locals do. Hmm.
3: Well, thank you again for joining our team, Rick. We look forward to welcoming you back monthly with additional tips for Atlanta travelers.
0: I'm just looking forward to that so much, Lois, because there's endless uh, insights that we can enjoy. And and for me, I just love to... um, uh, you know, make all the mistakes and take careful notes. Uh, when I get ripped off, I celebrate because they don't know who they just ripped off. And I'm going to learn that scam and that challenge and bring it home. And I've got a lifetime of travel skills to and lessons to share. And I'm just looking forward to our uh, regular conversations.
3: Travel expert Rick Steves. More information about our monthly series, ATL Up and Away, Travel Tips with Rick Steves, is on our website, slash city lights. In a moment, China Forbes of Pink Martini stops by ahead of the band's upcoming performance at the Eastern. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
5: Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia
1: Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at
4: georgiabright.org.
1: You love free.
3: This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The singer Chyna Forbes has called her band Pink Martini Musical Ambassadors. That description is fitting, given that the band has recorded songs in 25 different languages and performed with orchestras and musical legends all over the globe. Their eclectic blend of jazz, pop, and retro lounge music has had the world dancing and singing along since they began in Portland back in 1994. Pink Martini performs at the Eastern this Thursday. February 9th. Lead singer China Forbes joins me now ahead of the concert. She's with us via Zoom. China Forbes, welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Such a fan.
1: Oh, yes, <laughs> such a fan. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thank you.
3: You've been a member of Pink Martini since 1995. Correct? Correct. Okay. How does it feel to be part
1: of such a distinctive and still evolving enterprise? It feels magical and everything Thomas Lauderdale touches seems to feel magical. We never expected to even record the first album and then he, out of nowhere, when the band was just getting started, thought that it was time to do that. And as much as we all are curmudgeonly saying like, oh, it's too early, and, you know, and being downers, Thomas soldiers on and he sprinkles his pixie dust on things and it just creates something magical. So now I can't believe, you know, we've been doing this for over 25 years and it just, it feel, I feel so lucky.
3: I read that you pursued visual art and acting too. Would you tell us a bit more about your background in the arts before you sang with Pink Martini?
1: Yes, so I, I come from a family of painters and my grandmother on my father's side taught me to paint when I was in high school with oil paint. And I loved painting and when I, when I went to Harvard, I majored in visual and environmental studies, which was the art major. And I also, at the age of eight, decided I wanted to be a singer when I grew up. So I always sang and I really wanted to be in a musical, but whenever the chance would have arisen, it was taken away. You know, in the ninth grade at my school, there was always a musical, but my class voted to do a play. And then when I went to high school, I played sports, and the only musicals happened during the times that I was on sports teams, and so I just never did that, but I I was in plays, and then when I got to Harvard, I was in my first musical right away, the first semester of freshman year, and it was Evita. And it was oh my. huge yeah it was a huge production of course i was not playing ava perone because i was a freshman but i was playing the mistress which was the next best thing <laughs> so i got to sing a song all by myself on the stage and it was incredible and I, I started performing in theater both drama and musical theater and continued all throughout my college years and into my first years in new york after college
3: You met Thomas Lauderdale at Harvard, didn't you?
1: I did, yes.
3: And I read that he loved opera and would pull out opera scores or sheet music. And you actually taught yourself
1: some impressive operatic arias. I did. Actually, it was... It was interesting, Thomas had seen me in that production of Vivita and he came up to me and introduced himself and said that he wanted to accompany me and what did I want to sing. And I was the one who said opera because I had been so moved in high school by the movie A Room with a View. Oh, yes. The most like, you know, sumptuous Florentine fields are accompanied by the most beautiful arias by Verdi and Puccini that you've ever heard. And I couldn't get over it. And I just really, really wanted to sing that music, even though I had never trained. I had never taken voice lessons.
3: So you sang O Mio Babino Caro right out at the (laughs) gate with him?
1: Yes. I can't say that it was perfection, but it was so much fun.
3: Now, in the very diverse roster of genres that Pink Martini incorporates, which are some of your favorites?
1: Oh, well, I love singing in French. Our first song that we wrote together was the song Sympathique, Je Ne Veux Pas Travailler, which has become a standard in France and is known all over the world for the chorus, Je Ne Veux Pas Travailler. Me prendre. Je ne veux pas travailler. Je ne veux pas déjeuner. Je veux seulement oublier. Et puis je
2: fume. Déjà j'ai connu le parfum de l'amour. Un million de roses ne pas autant. Maintenant, une seule.
3: It even became a rallying cry for striking workers.
1: It did, it did, and that was partially how it became a hit because they were striking and singing our song, and then our song was on a commercial for Citroën cars, and it just kind of all happened at the same time and spread like wildfire. And um, it's my favorite song we've ever written. And it's hard. Well, I don't think we'll ever top it. But that just singing in French makes me feel close to my father because he was from a French background, French and American, and he loved his French, great. His grandmother was French and my great grandmother. And he just would be so happy if you were still alive to know that we have such a big career in France.
3: Why was it important to you and Thomas Lauderdale to arrange this very broad repertoire?
1: So the the repertoire is so broad and the the different languages that we sing in is something Thomas started from the beginning. He loved the sound of other languages and preferred the sound of other languages to, to English. So anytime we did a song, That could be in English, like never on Sunday. We did it in the original Greek.
5: (laughs) ¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶¶
1: Or, you know, any Spanish song or French song, we would always do in the original. The Japanese song, Song of the Black Lizard, we performed on the first record. So, it started with that, just love of the other sounds of the languages. And then as we started to tour, it was such a great connection we had with our fans when we could sing a song in their language. And we just started adding more and more and more, and Pink Martini has always been completely impossible to pin down, it's so diverse. So the sounds and the the styles are endless, the possibilities are endless.
3: You sing in nearly twenty languages. Mm-hmm. In what languages are you fluent?
1: I am fluent in English, and I'm fluent-ish in French, but not. <laughs> I'm not fluent because I still need to live there. I need to live in France at some point in my life so I can really become fluent. But I have the strongest foundation in French. And then after that, Italian. Mm. I studied Italian and I lived with a family as a mother's helper in college in Rome. And so those are the languages I know the best.
3: Bella. Yet you sing.
1: Yes, I'm on the precipice of Spanish. Ah,
3: very useful and <laughs> I mean, important in our country, yes. and so so much fantastic music. I mean, so many great songs, Spanish language. Yeah. But, Shana, you take um, Turkish, Croatian, Farsi. H- how do you learn to pronounce the words with such confidence and and sing with such fluidity? I
1: found that with languages I had no frame of reference for, that the best way to do it was to study with a native speaker and figure out how to pronounce everything. And then when I perform it, to pretend that I'm a little bit tipsy and mm-hmm. just sort of blur it all. Because if you overly enunciate and specify each word. It doesn't sound natural. So I kind of blur it together. And that's my my special secret.
3: Well, thank you for sharing it.
1: <laughs> You're welcome.
3: So Thomas Lauderdale had this vision from the get-go about the, we are the world kind of, everyone is welcome, every nationality, and he compared the band to the UN. He pursued, or he was pursuing a career in politics before starting Pink Martini. Do you think his background in
1: the political realm informed the group's mission? I do. I mean, because the group was really born of a political action that Thomas was taking to stop a measure that was banning homosexuality in the state of Oregon. So, you know, he was fighting against this and needed a band to play at this party for the stopping of the measure and that's why he put the band together. So it was really springing from that initiative and I think his his intelligence and his background in politics definitely helped to grow the band to the the this big wonderful group it is so diverse inclusive and i think instead of becoming a politician he realized he could do more through music but maybe with the same the same mission but less overt because he brings people together from different political backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and all the time, you know, and we really attracted a diverse crowd. And he loves that with everyone side by side, dancing and singing together and sort of forgetting their differences. So I do think that it goes, it goes together hand in hand.
3: Unifying power of music. Mm -hmm. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis, and my guest is China Forbes, the lead singer of Pink Martini. Pink Martini has collaborated with so many illustrious artists from music and theater, including Phyllis Diller, Carol Channing, Rufus Wainwright, the grandchildren of the actual Von Trapp family. <laughs> yeah. And our friend Ari Shapiro
0: from
3: NPR's All Things (laughs) Considered. How do you decide who will be a part of each of the shows when you're on tour? Does it rotate per show or per, per tour?
1: It seems to. I mean, I think with Ari, it's whenever he can get some vacation days, he might join us on a tour. He usually flies in and then after the last performance that he can be a part of, he's on a really early flight back to Washington, D.C., and we never even get to say goodbye to him. But other than that, it's kind of whoever Thomas is hanging out with at the time. I think he sort of thinks, oh, why don't you come on tour this time? And it's really who's in front of Thomas, mainly. Ah,
3: because some guests the band has brought on come from entirely different fields of expertise you've had fashion designers activists journalists singing on your recordings
1: how do you find
3: these eager collaborators who are not
1: musicians (laughs) that's also his favorite thing to do thomas he loves someone who doesn't know what they're doing to do something, which is, I think he just likes the spontaneity and the freshness of it and the excitement of the person who never you normally gets to sing with a band. And um, with the fashion designer, uh, Albert Elbaz, we performed at his 10th anniversary at Lanvin in Paris. And he is, he was, he was so warm and friendly and just amazing. And he he made a beautiful dress for me to perform in. And (gasps) it's got feathers. It's red with a heart, you know, necklace on it. It's really cool. And we heard that he always wanted to sing Que Sera sera." And so he got up and sang with us and I videotaped it and other people filmed it. And sadly he died during COVID and we lost him. And I happened to be in Paris and I went to the Museum of fashion and they have a show on him right now and in the exhibit there's a room where he's singing that Karah with thomas playing and I had no idea what I was stumbling into
5: was just a little girl I asked my mother what will I be
1: will I be pretty will I is what she said to me, Casarosa. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see, Casarosa. I mean, it was amazing. I love that song. It's beautiful. I, I was a Very
3: little girl. I mean, like, maybe four. And I remember my aunt singing it to me. Was it Doris Day who recorded? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So you must have felt like quite the chanteuse with his (laughs) gown. Did you get to keep it? I hope you got to
1: keep it. I did. I did. And he actually... Over the years, he gave me a few more, and I have them, and I just treasure them so much. La la. Because glam, I mean, it's part of your persona. It is. There's no escaping it. <laughs> there have been <laughs> times when I did not want, did not want to go shopping, but sometimes you just have to. Pink martini. It seems
3: is continuously bringing on different musicians all over the world and, in fact, has added new members over the last two years and a new European tour director. What does the band look for in
1: scouting talent? Well, I think just excellence. When Thomas was looking for some more singers, he found two singers, Jimmy Harad and Edna Vasquez, who are very different from one another and very different from any of us who are already in the band, and they were just irresistible. I think it's that irresistible quality. If Thomas can't resist it, <laughs> that's the person he wants.
3: China Forbes, lead singer of the acclaimed band Pink Martini. The group performs at the Eastern this Thursday, February ninth, and more information is on our website, wabe.org/citylights. Coming up, we'll hear how sobriety intersects with comedy in "Theatrical Outfit" and "Dad's Garage" co-production of the white chip. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. The experience of a full lone alcoholic is rarely seen, and though the addict may find clever, even brilliant ways to rationalize their drinking, the true nature of the disease can remain elusive. Sean Daniels' brutally honest and often hilarious play, The White Chip, became a New York Times critic's pick, after its Manhattan debut in 2019. It's on stage now at Dad's Garage as a collaboration with Theatrical Outfit and three actors portraying over 30 characters. Sean Daniels joins me now via Zoom along with Tim Stoltenberg, the co-director, and Artistic Director of Dad's Garage, and Theatrical Outfit Artistic Director, Matt Torney, Welcome to City Lights.
5: Thank you, Lois. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much.
2: Yes, thank you.
3: Sean, you wrote the very well-received play, The White Ship*, drawing on a significant amount of personal experience would you give us a synopsis of the play?
4: Well, you know, I got sober in 2011. And right afterwards, so many people in our field came up to me and they all said, you know, I'm so glad that you're sober. Um, I've actually been sober for about four years. And, uh, you know, part of me was so happy for them. And the other part of me was like, where the F were you? Like, why Why did I think that I was the only person going through this? Why did I think that I was the only person in the American theater that couldn't hold their liquor? And so I started to decide to try to put something out there, to try to kind of raise awareness of what it was. And, you know, because of my time at Dad's and because of just, I think, just how I am as a person, I don't really understand things unless they're not Funny or through the lens of comedy, because I think that's how I think the vast majority of people were. So I tried to write a funny play about the perils of addiction so that the word could get out there. Because, you know, we all grew up in the war on drugs and we grew up in after school specials. And the last thing I wanted was for it to be either of those things. I wanted it to be something that the, the average person could enjoy. And the thing that I have learned in doing it is whenever we perform it, I always feel bad for all the subscribers that have to come who don't have addiction in their family. And then what happens afterwards in the lobby is everyone tells me, oh, this play is actually about my uncle, brother, ex-wife, mom, and you realize that actually it is about everybody that it is an issue that we face across the country. Everyone does. Everybody knows somebody. We just don't talk about it in the same way. So that was my hope in putting it out there. And, you know, I'm just grateful to Matt and Tim for programming it so that these type of conversations can happen in Atlanta.
3: Yes, Matt and Tim, eager to know how the collaboration came about. Also, how two people can direct
5: one show well uh, i can say a little bit about how the collaboration was born because this is a play that i have loved for for years so so for theatrical outfit it was just a matter of when we were going to do it and the context in which we were going to do it and then as some of you may know we are closed for renovation at the minute and we needed a play to do off-site And there was like this series of roads leading towards this as the perfect project. The White Chip, part of which is set at Dad's Garage, performed at Dad's Garage, created in collaboration with Tim, the artistic director of Dad's Garage, and also starring Tom Key, who loved this play and uh, wanted to program it many years ago before it had been the big hit in New York. So all of these roads made a very easy phone call to Tim where I was like, Tim, do you know the white chip? Let's do it. (laughs) And luckily he said, yes, and here we are. Oh,
3: Tim, how do you work with the actors to portray so many different roles in one show?
2: Yeah, I think that was one of the biggest challenges with this show is to, how do you do it in an authentic way that doesn't take away the, the comedy and also the message behind it? And I think Matt and I working together, we had a great opportunity to have two brains instead of one, so we could toss out ideas and try them and then have Matt and I shape them together. So it was a very supportive rehearsal process. You know, we tried to draw on both theatrical outfit and Dad's garages skills of theater. So Dad's, you know, very improv, finding things in the moment, theatrical outfit, very professional, just a high caliber of, of theater. How, how do you put put those two together? And I I think we did a good job of it, and I'm very proud of what we all created. And of course, you know, we had Sean too, so we could always call Sean and be like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" <laughs> so we got an insight, you know, to the to the play from the playwright. So we had a lot of support from everybody.
5: And and also also Lois, just to add that when Tim and I first sat down, we knew that for the play to be successful, it had to be very 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 funny like hilarious using all the kind of different comedic tools we could throw at it and also very 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 real and that if those two things could exist in the same space we could offer a lens on on addiction on alcoholism that had never been seen before in atlanta in this way and we also made an agreement we said if what we made felt too much like a theatrical outfit production or too much like a dad's production we would have failed. So we really were trying to create something that was a true collaboration, like being very open and and looking for ways that we could work together. I think that made like a really wonderful, it's a brilliant production. So come and see it before it's sold out. And also artistically, it has just been so satisfying to kind of share and be open to new experiences and and techniques.
3: Well, this, this is for both you and Tim, how do you direct an actor to ensure that the audience easily distinguishes one role from another?
2: I think uh, you know, we discovered that every every actor in the show brings their own strengths of how they create character. So we, we had the the privilege of working with really talented actors and uh, let, letting them establish something first. And then all we have to do is support you know their choices so some glasses just a scarf a change in voice or change in physical was enough to portray those so many different characters through the show because sometimes in the show literally actors saying a line as one character and then a line later they have to switch to another one so it was very quick and very fast of the change between the two
3: who are some of the main characters among the 30 plus portrayed.
5: So, first of all, the three actors are just creative geniuses. You got Andrew Benader, who is playing Stephen, part of whose journey is connected to, to Sean's own experience. Uh, you got Tom Key, who's playing uh, most of the male roles in the show, and then Gina Rakiki, who's a, a Dad's Garage Company member, who's playing most of the female roles in the show. And Tom and Gina, their main characters are playing Stephen's parents. Um, That's sort of the major arc of the show is how he relates to his family and how as a family they deal or fail to deal with addiction. But then also there's wives, lovers, a boss (laughs) from from a theatre who is a, a casting director that Tom Key does with tremendous hilarity and then various characters from different moments in Stephen's life, college friends, school friends, people associated with the Mormon church and then other people that he meets in the context of of addiction and recovery. There's several scenes set in a recovery center in Florida that are absolutely brilliant in some of the high points of the show, Uh, both in terms of their comic value, but in terms of the, the revelations that Tom, Gina, and Andrew were able to bring to that space and that conversation.
3: If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, discussing the new production of The White Chip with playwright Sean Daniels and co-directors Matt Torney of Theatrical Outfit and Tim Stoltenberg of Dad's Garage. The main character, Stephen, refers to himself in the play as a recovering Mormon. Mormons abstain from alcohol. I wondered if giving up drinking poses another challenge for someone distancing themselves from a religious upbringing where drinking is prohibited. It can be difficult to find sobriety resources that aren't tied to specific religions. Sean, does that resonate for you?
4: Yeah, you know one of the one of the things I, I want to make sure that just happens through the play and and through the other work that I'm doing is that that it's treated like any illness, you know, I mean, actually, you know, alcoholism or substance use disorder was declared an illness in the 50s. But deep down inside, currently, we all sort of feel like, shouldn't you pull yourself together? Like we haven't really addressed it like it's an illness at the time. And any other illness would be about early prevention. It would be about early diagnosis. It would be about conversation. And then when you were diagnosed with it, it wouldn't be a death sentence. And you would be given multiple options on ways that you could tackle it. Currently, you're kind of told, and this is through TV, but this is all through through the court system, that there is one way and that is kind of AA12 step programs. And you know that's not for everybody. And it for me, you know, I it really clicked for me when I learned about the science of addiction. I learned about brain chemistry and neural pathways and that made so much sense to me. But truly for the year and a half before when I had been trying to get sober, I had just been, kind of told that I had to dig deep into the religious aspect of it. And now I know that there are multiple different ways to recovery, but I just didn't know then. And I don't think the average person does, because if you're not in that world, we don't talk about it in the same way. In fact, you know, when I, I got a DUI at one point and I was court ordered, by the state of Kentucky to attend AA meetings. So it's also a cheap and easy way for the states to be able to try to get people help, whether or not it's the right thing for them. And that's not how we treat any other disease that we know that people face. So, you know, for me, I just, you know, I had a tough experience. I don't, I don't know that I will ever do organized religion again. I definitely believe in spirituality and I believe in ritual and all the things that kind of cross over between, Church and theater, but you know there are multiple scientific-based, kind of patient-first ways of getting sober that the average person doesn't know. And so my hope in this play being out there is just that that conversation gets started, that people understand that there are different ways for them to be able to, to seek recovery.
3: Would you explain the significance of a white chip within the culture of Alcoholics Anonymous?
4: Yeah, so they say that it is it's what you get when you want to stop drinking or that you have 24 hours and then you get different colored chips for different lengths of sobriety and it, it make it's such a big deal at the beginning to get 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120 and But the, the white chip is what you just show up and you know they say this is our most important chip. It's for anyone who has a desire to stop drinking and, Oh my God, I collected so many of them because I really wanted to stop, but I just couldn't and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So I would go, I would take it. Everybody's so supportive.' It's, you know it's, kind of, it's it's a little overwhelming. And then you, know, five days later I'd be back getting another one. And, and somewhere, you know we're in the midst of moving. Somewhere in my house, I have a box full of them because they're, you just collect them. And it, it at some point it becomes a, a little bit of a testament to how it's not working for you before you could move on to other colors. But um, so yeah, that's, that's where the name of the show came from because I just began to collect them and um, wanted to figure out how to get past being the person at each meeting that was getting all that amazing support from everybody as you tried to make it to day 30.
3: Tim, Dad's Garage serves alcohol, yes. and people can bring their drinks into the theater. Is that still the case?
2: Yeah, we offer, we have a bar down there, but something we did to speak more to the sober community is we offer mocktails, so tasty drinks that don't have alcohol, as well as other non-alcoholic beverages. I think what's really interesting to me is having friends who are in sobriety and recovering is uh their bravery to go into uh, environments where alcohol is around and the work they've done to be like you know what I'm just not going to make that choice today and I think the show helps remind people of like everybody's on this road in some form or fashion and just because there's alcohol down the way doesn't mean doesn't mean it's there for you and the the strength that people have is tremendous
3: Mm, okay so you didn't have any change in policy about serving drinks during the show.
2: No. No. And we, we talked to folks about this, people in, in Recovery and Sobriety, and they were like, no, I mean, if you offer drinks to those who want them and those who won't won't. So it was a it was a good support.
3: Matt, as artistic director of theatrical outfit, how does this play fit within the outfits mission to start conversations that matter?
5: Oh uh I mean, it's almost like the poster child <laughs> for our mission. Well, the first thing I will say about that is over the past couple of years, when life seems to have added so many layers of complexity, defining what matters has become a much more a nuanced and profound endeavor. And, and the best way I can describe it is uh, something that matters or, or a play or an artistic project that matters is something that helps us make sense of a crazy complicated world, helps us find our place within it and connect to one another as human beings. Now this play, the best thing that it does is destigmatizes something that is full of shame and morality in the way that is discussed, not just in America, all over the world, but also through humor and often like madcap, crazy, hilarious humor, it puts you it immerses you in the experience of someone who's struggling with alcoholism. You get to understand it from the inside out rather than as a spectator on the sidelines. Mm. So whenever you leave the theater, like you definitely leave the theater with a deeper understanding of the challenges of alcoholism and the complexity of recovery. But even more than that, you've connected to another human being in a very real way. It's not someone giving you the narrative of the thing. It's the direct experience of the thing. So what we what we are seeing is like Sean mentioned, people coming up afterwards and saying, oh, this is my life. This is my brother. This is something else. Um, And we're also doing one thing to extend those conversations in the community uh, is we're going to do two private performances at a recovery center in the old fourth ward that focuses on folks without access to insurance. And we're going to do two basically bare bones performances at a meeting with just the box of props and a few minimal things and the actors and a couple of sound effects so that we can have the conversation in that environment, as well as the show with all the bells and whistles for the audience at the theater. And we think doing those two things in concert with one another helps create a network of conversations across the city and through our community, and not just in the lobby of the theater.
3: Theatrical Outfit Artistic Director Matt Torney and Tim Stoltenberg, the director of Dad's Garage, with playwright Sean Daniels. Co-production of The White Chip is on stage at Dad's Garage through February 19th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Fernbank Museum is offering a nighttime encounter with nature illuminated in their outdoor exhibition, Wild Woods Aglow, on its 10 acres of woodlands, natural flora and fauna blend with glowing displays in a multi-sensory experience using illumination, immersive projections, and an original music composition. Wildwoods Aglow creates an immersive reality of biodiversity for guests of all ages. Roots spread into towering trees, Nocturnal animals come alive, and larger-than-life glowing mushrooms offer guests a new way of looking at nature. Sarah Arnold is the Director of Education at Fernbank Museum.
4: What makes this exhibit so spectacular is the hidden interactivity. It changes and reacts to the guests. Uh, in ways that they might not even notice or might surprise them.
3: The Wildwoods Aglow exhibition will be on display at Fernbank Museum through March 5th. More information is available on their website, fernbankmuseum.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with China Forbes of Pink Martini, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights' senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We are at W-A-B-E City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.
0: Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.